Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Everybody, today on the podcast, we have Dennis Tourish. And this is the first time we've met. And Dennis, I'm excited to learn about you. I'm excited to learn about the journal Leadership. And you have recently, at least in 2019, wrote a book, and Management Studies in Crisis. And I'm sure COVID-19 hasn't helped any of what you've written about in the least. <laughs> so welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. And if you would, Dennis, tell listeners a little bit about you, sir. Well, Scott, it's great to meet you, and I look forward to an interesting conversation. I currently work as a professor of leadership and organization studies at the University of uh, Sussex Business School. Attentive listeners might note that my accent is Irish. I come originally from Northern Ireland. I also edit the journal Leadership, as you mentioned, and I published this book in 2019, Management Studies in Crisis, Fraud, Deception, and Meaningless Research, because I have become increasingly concerned by the state of scholarship in our field and its failure, as I see it, to engage uh, clearly enough with important issues that face the world. Mm. And I am really, really excited to have that conversation, to explore that a little bit. Let's start there. Let's start with the book. The first chapter caught my eye very, very quickly, and it's titled for listeners, Flawed from the Get-Go, The Early Misadventures of Management Research. So tell us a couple stories that come to mind for you from this chapter. Flawed from the Get-Go. Yes, uh, I think sometimes we imagine that there was a previous golden age of whatever it is that we're talking about that we should aspire to return to. But in fact, management research has always been, in my view, fatally flawed. Up until not that long ago, there wasn't that much of it to begin with. Um, it was only in the 50s that some very prominent uh, management journals began to appear. Before that, most of what was published was an Ian uh, opinion. I give the example in that chapter, I think, of a, a, a paper in one of the early editions of the Academy of Management Journal, which talks along the lines that uh, executives, as they were then called, must make decisions. And they must make decisions because as organizations develop, problems exist. 
Therefore, they must make decisions. Who would have thought it? <laughs> there's um, wisdom there, right? There's wisdom there. <laughs> it was very uh, elementary. But then also, if you go back into some of the so-called classics of management that we still study in business schools, like the Hawthorne studies or the work of Frederick Taylor, it quickly becomes apparent that many of the claims based on that work um, are hopelessly exaggerated, that the original studies were fundamentally flawed, that some of the things that Taylor, for example, claimed to have happened didn't happen. And really? even pretty much sainted Elton Mayo, you know, he had a theory before he went into the Hawthorne plant and uh, discarded many more obvious explanations for his findings uh, to support the theory that he had already settled himself upon. I didn't know any of this. Hmm. Talk a little bit more about some of the early foundations that maybe, and like you said, flawed from the get-go. Are there anything, yeah. are there other uh, I didn't uh, know any of this. Yes, uh, I, I must admit, as I dug into it, it took me a little bit by uh, surprise as well. For example, some of um, the main claims in Mayo's work rests upon a small sample of something like five or six employees that he and his colleagues allegedly studied intensively. But even that's an exaggeration because it turns out a couple of them were removed from the experiment whenever they didn't display the behaviours that he wanted and new people were drafted in. And then wow. this was used to make monumental claims of uh, global significance. It also turns out that the experimenters interacted frequently with the workers that they were observing and discussed what they were doing, what types of things they were hoping to find, how they felt that it was all going, and so <laughs> on. So these are uh, violations of the most elementary experimental protocols yeah. I mean, you could say, well, this was in the late 20s, early 30s, and they had not as much of an idea then as we do today. And that may be true, but nevertheless, it means that we should perhaps stop venerating studies that uh, are quite obviously very much flawed. And most of us only ever hear about them these days through looking at simplified textbook accounts in any event. you know. And as to Frederick Taylor and his work, he claimed that he had managed to... Uh, boost productivity significantly as a result of fundamentally time and motion studies that he allegedly carried out. But these were also flawed. And, uh, you know, he claimed a certain target of productivity that had been reached. But this was um, this was based on a study of, I think, one individual over something like a day. And as another commentator observed, trying to extrapolate that onto what somebody could have sustained throughout their career would be like trying to extrapolate the running time of an athlete in a 100-metre dash to a marathon. It was impossible and unsustainable, and yet too much of this stuff has been taken at face value. And I think many of these problems, in one form or another, unfortunately persist today. Dennis, I was just going to go there, because in your role as the editor of Leadership, the academic journal, you're seeing all kinds of stuff come across your desk what do you see today that's perpetuated, that continues, that fundamentally gets under your skin? You see more and more of it, and you think this has to change, this has to shift, and you're smiling. So I know you have a few ideas in mind. <laughs> yes. I, I, I mean, it's great being an editor of a journal, but it can also be frustrating when you get monumentally weak work coming uh, your way. One of the things that I think I find most often that annoys me is that increasingly people are designing studies into, for example, leadership, in which not only is there a bias to publishing only statistically significant results 
but only statistically significant results are possible from the nature of the study. And sometimes this type of work gets published in so-called top journals. I am thinking, for example, about one paper that I encountered which uh, claimed to support the now rather popular theory of authentic leadership. Hmm. And this was based on an experiment involving students, not employees, students, about whom we are told very little. They were uh, given uh, two versions of a story about an Australian political leader. One of them had a headline, something along the lines of, this man changes his mind for um, personal reasons. The other had a headline such as, this man changes his mind uh, for the public good. And people were then asked to assess what they thought of the leader in these two conditions. So naturally enough, it would be astonishing if anything else had happened, the leader who changed his mind for the public good, and it was all the same information about them both, came out much, much better, better admired as a leader. And this was taken as conclusive evidence in support of so-called authentic leadership theory. Now, I mean, any undergraduate student should be able to see that the headlines themselves completely skews the responses that respondents uh, actually get. So I think it is an example of a tendency to conduct empirical research with a theory already in mind, to be absolutely determined to prove that that theory is correct, and then conduct rather shoddy empirical work that comes accompanied by very substantial claims about its significance, but which in actual fact tells us nothing worth knowing about anything of interest. How does this turn around? What are your thoughts? What are what are two or three things that need to be done to help set us on a firmer foundation? Well, I am delighted to say that I think more and more academics are getting concerned by these issues. I am proud and pleased, for example, to be associated with the Responsible Research and Business and Management Network, yeah. which was founded by a former president of the Academy of Management, Anne Suey. Um, I encourage listeners to look up its website, rrbm.com, if memory serves me correctly. And uh, this is gathering scholars around the world together to commit to doing what is called responsible research. That is research that deals with important issues, that is conducted in an ethical and transparent uh, manner, which tries to make a difference to the world that we uh, live in. Because, you see, I think part of the reason why some of that shoddy work is published that I'm talking about is that due to perverse incentives in the academy, for many academics, publishing has become an end in itself rather than a means to try and influence the world in which we live. So I think one thing that's required and one thing which the RRBM is playing a very positive role in is reminding everybody why we became academics in the first place. And I think we need to build this into doctoral education as well, as well as into the mission statements of of our journals and the practices of our faculty, that we come into this uh, uh, business to ask interesting ideas, to write well, to address important questions, to, in a way, change the world around us. And a very poor article, however sophisticated its statistics, that doesn't really address things in a rigorous manner and uh, 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 and is biased in favour of a particular theory to begin with, it isn't going to achieve those objectives. Yeah. Well, in, in your your third chapter... When the levee breaks, academic life on the brink. Now, I don't know if that's a Led Zeppelin reference. Subtly, I'm picking up on a potential, with which I, I I enjoy. But you know, talk a little bit about that. Is that is that aligned with what your previous statement was just suggesting? 
Yes, it is. I mean, they uh, well done on picking up the Led Zeppelin reference. It's a great <laughs> song, well recorded by them. Um, but I do think that uh, there has been a deterioration in the conditions of academic labour over a prolonged period of time. The uh, A report was published in Britain in 2015 called The Metric Tide, which I think sums this up very well, that we are audited, measured and monitored more frequently and more things. And um, there are now high productivity standards on people where we are expected to publish um, a significant volume of papers in top journals in a relatively short period of time. Now, I think that has multiple problems because, among other things, it discourages us from asking big questions with uncertain answers to important issues. Yes. Because that might not enable us to publish within 12 months in the all-important so-called top-tier journals. Yes. I mean, to give one example, I think if you look at the Academy of Management journals, only one paper, if memory serves me correct, has been published in them on the Great Financial Recession of 2008. And that wasn't in the Academy of Management Journal or the Academy of Management uh, Review. And you can understand why people don't try and address those questions. They're complicated. They're difficult. It might be difficult to produce a paper within a very short period of time. So there are these perverse incentives that are there which encourage us down this road. And people are pressurized a lot to go along that way. So I often encounter PhD students these days who have become old before their time mm. and cynical in advance about the mission in which they have uh, found themselves engaged in. So I think one of the things that we need to do with them as well is to say, look, we have more agency and power at all stages of our career than you often imagine. For example, it's madness to think as a young academic in our field that you must publish only and so-called top-tier journals, mm. and that you are a failure if you don't do so. Uh, it's entirely possible to have a satisfactory and interesting career without ever publishing an article on the Academy of Management Review, and very few academics will do it. And yes. So by that standard, we are all pretty much failures. <laughs> we go there. I think it's more important to have an enjoyable career, to do work that matters to us, and uh, remain interested, focused, and curious Above all, be curious throughout our academic careers. Well, and be curious. And to your point, the system in so many places just doesn't pro promote that. I was at a conference about two years ago, and there was a gentleman who was from a Research One institution, and we were talking. He was an assistant professor. And I said, so what is your, how does everything work for you at XYZ institution? And I believe he said this to me. Now, you can let me know if this sounds outside the pale, but he said his clock was about eight years. So eight years. And the expectation that it was that he would have about a, a tier one hit, which, as you know, is what, six or seven different journals that were on the possible list each year. Now, that that seems to be a fool's errand. That That doesn't seem like it's even possible. And I'd said, what happens when your article is rejected from one of these tier ones? Do you submit it somewhere else? And, and he said, no, we we wouldn't want to be associated with publishing in a less than journal. That would ruin my career. So this individual is set up, in my opinion, to, to maybe get three or four, because the time horizon on an article in, in Academy of Management Journal is what, year and a half, two years? Most likely, it's it's impossible. And that was this this individual's job. That was their job. It was just, that was the task. And how they did in the classroom. And they were actually chastised because this was more of a teaching-oriented conference. And the, the, the people were like, why are you doing this? This is a waste of your time. You should just be publishing. 
Well, I think, you know, the, the situation that you describe is all too common, and I view it as madness. I note that uh, there's nothing in what you said about uh, what this individual was supposed to publish or what issues he, he or she might address. It was all about publishing in a small handful of, uh, of elite uh, journals within a very narrow uh, time frame. So I think that's, first of all, practically impossible. But secondly, it, and I write about this in that chapter in my book, When the Levy Breaks, it's almost calculated to drive any individual insane to create an environment in which the only thing that matters to them in their life is work. I saw an amusing post somewhere quite recently, I think on Twitter, where um, an academic had gone for a walk in a local graveyard. Did you see this? And he found a headstone. And on the headstone was one of these little QR codes. And you could use that to go to the individual's um, uh, Google Scholar profile in their H index and so on. It was all utterly, utterly out of proportion. And I do suspect that some of our leading institutions, the academics within them are a bunch of lonely lunatics who hole up in their offices, madly obsessing over the next grant getting offensive or publishing offensive that they need to be involved in. I think real academic work means that we must have permission to feel. We must have uh, time to think. Uh, we must recognise that there is value in publishing beyond the so-called top-tier journals. And, you know, I, I, was, uh, I treasure the examples of, for example, Jay Barney, who has published one of the most cited papers in the history of our field. I checked it just the other day. It's on resource-based theory. It has 79,000 uh, citations, which is incredible. And... Uh, in a wonderful book, Great Minds and Management, where a number of senior scholars explore the origins of their theories, he explains that his paper was rejected by the key journals in his field when he first wrote it, and it was eventually accepted by the Journal of Management, which wasn't as well known then as it is now, only because he was editing a special issue of the journal and accepted his own paper himself. And then this went on to have this impact. So I think many of our leading, so-called leading journals can be quite conservative in their methods, in their approach. In, um, I mean, even if you, if you look today at the Academy of Management Review, it publishes a scandally limited, scandalously limited amount of critically management-orientated uh, work. And why is that? It's because of the innate conservatism of those traditions that it represents. And I think we need to fire up the enthusiasm of our younger colleagues to be motivated much more by the possibility of doing uh, doing really good work. And I also feel sorry sometimes for people who land jobs at so-called top schools. And then they must have a moment of horror where they realise, good God almighty, I'm expected to maintain this insane workload for the next 40 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what a nightmarish prospect. It shows <laughs> that sometimes the thing that is worse than having your dreams frustrated is having them realised. <laughs> That's well said. That's well said. Well, I was on a, a call with Brad Jackson whom you know, and he had mentioned he had mentioned the journal leadership pivoting fairly quickly and writing some very publishing, I should say, some very timely articles. We just spoke about at times that long time horizon that can occur in some of the journals. Talk about that. Talk about the last year of articles, and I would love to. I would love for listeners to have that perspective. Well, this is a great concern of mine about the nature of our field. Um, I came across an interesting article recently in Organization Science, and I noticed on the top left of it, 
that it had been between four and five years from when it was submitted to when it was published by uh, the journal. And I sometimes, and I pointed out that uh, AOM journals haven't yet published anything worth thinking about in the financial crisis of 2008. So I sometimes feel that our journals are more like history journals. By the time articles appear on issues, the issues have receded far into the distance. Um, we haven't seen much in so-called top journals about ma- climate change, for example, and the role of management and leadership in addressing that. So I have taken steps with my journal to try and encourage the opposite process. Last April, for example, we published a special issue on the leadership and the COVID crisis. I suspect we might have been the first social science journal to uh, do that. We have just published an issue on leadership and race, which was inspired by the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement in uh, the United States. Um, we are in the process of pulling together a special issue on climate change as well. The world is, and we have published on the post-truth issue in the fairly recent period as well. The world is moving fast, and uh, our, our scholarship needs to reflect that in a little bit more timely a manner than it does. I don't mean by that that we should uh, cut corners in our work, but we can certainly offer interesting ideas much more in a more timely manner than we seem to have been doing in the past. Yep. And when you look at the landscape from your purview, what are some opportunities that you see for scholars to be investigating, to exploring? Maybe some some articles that could come across your desk that you would think, wow, this is cutting edge, this is interesting, this is timely. Can you think of, you've mentioned climate change, Black Lives Matter, COVID. Are there other topics that are on your radar that you would just love to see academic work around? Well, I mean, my speciality is leadership, and I'm not just interested in leadership in the business sector, but more broadly as well. So I think we could, for example, do with much more insightful analysis from leadership scholars on populism, on what it represents, on the phenomenon that uh, Trump personified, for example. And um, uh, this is an example, too, of the difficulties we have. I had a correspondence recently with the editor of one of our prominent uh, journals, where I suggested that it would be a good idea to maybe have a paper looking at the leadership of uh, Donald Trump and what it represents and so on. He said, no, because we do not publish um, case study work because it isn't scientific. So therefore, we can't explore this particular issue in that way. So I think we need to have a much more open approach to different methodologies as well, by the way. Um, Well, and as part of that, I would say that I object very strongly to the fetishization of theory development in our top journals, which prevents us making very useful contributions to problems that we can observe. Um, I I can't think of any other field that shares that obsession. I absolutely accept that empirical material must be framed in the context of some theory to explain it. But to try and insist that every paper must develop theory in some way Um, is a recipe for madness because we can have interesting observations about emerging and new phenomenon that we can explain perfectly well using existing theory. In my mind, that is still insightful, important and valuable work. And uh, I do think that uh, the insistence to the contrary is one of the things that is contributing to major problems in our discipline where hardly anybody outside it reads it and certainly nobody would do so unless they were a masochist of some kind. <laughs> Look at the horrible writing as people try to pretend that they're producing theory even when they aren't. 
And um, I published a little paper last year in the Academy of Management, Learning and Education Journal adapted from my book. Uh, this was called The Triumph of Nonsense in Management Studies. And I argued in it that um, we've often heard of imposter syndrome in the academy. People feel that they're not really as qualified for a job as they should be. And in comparison to their, their peers, they're somehow just pretending. And I argued in this paper that many of us have become what I call genuine imposters. That is, we pretend to be doing more meaningful work than we are, more competently than we are, and we claim to be developing theory, but we really aren't, when we're oftentimes just using big words and jargon to confuse our readers and to <laughs> baffle and bamboozle editors into accepting our work. <laughs> Dennis, I have a, I have a colleague at a that I've gone to a, the International Leadership Association conference with for for a couple decades now, actually about a decade and a half. And we always joked because we would we made up this fictitious theory called leader aura theory, or LAT. We called it LAT. So it was you know the leader's aura, and we would we would in casual conversation just drop you know it's like leader aura theory and continue forward. <laughs> and about half of the people in the conversations wouldn't ever challenge it and say, "Now what's that? I haven't heard of that." They would just kind of nod. <laughs> quietly go off and try and look up if there was a thing called leader or a theory. So yeah, we can get, and, and I was having a conversation with a mentor of mine this morning and I'm not going to get this correctly, but he had read something where an individual was communicating the levels of knowledge and it went from smart to brilliant, to genius, to wise, to, to, to genius, to simplistic to simple, right? So that the hierarchy, I think if we really truly are doing our work in an incredible Einstein-like way, we will take that complexity and at least help translate it, not keep it in the stratosphere. <laughs> yeah, but you see, if you try and work like that, then you will be accused of not developing theory in some yeah. way because your ideas are too simple to understand. In my book that you mentioned also, I, I invent a leadership theory and a chapter devoted to criticizing authentic leadership theory. And I think I called my theory athletic leadership theory <laughs> and explained how you might go about developing this and validating it and uh, and so on. And of course, there's money to be made by that type of approach yes. because it can become a consultancy calling card. Yeah. Uh, what it doesn't do is genuinely advance our knowledge about the realities of life, organizations and leadership. Yes. We even had a logo, Dennis. We had we had a very beautiful logo for Lat Theory. And, I love uh, it. Leadership. <laughs> maybe you should uh, develop that onto a serious publication. <laughs> just see if we could just kind of pop, you, you don't be surprised if you get an article with that with that uh, as <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> so, okay. We are we're at about 26 minutes, sir. Any other things that you're thinking about? Is it as you reflect on the 2019 work, your book? What uh, insights have you had after having it out in the world? Well, uh, first of all, I've been very surprised by the response that it generated, and also by the response I got for the uh, paper in Amley that was adapted from it. I actually had about 100 emails in response to that paper, which is most unusual. You know, most of the time we publish a paper and we never hear a peep from anybody about it. And uh, these emails included a significant number of very prominent figures in our field, including some former presidents of the AOM, which greatly encouraged me on the one hand. But the volume of correspondence also showed me that 
there is a deep problem in our field and that very many of us are concerned about it. You know, and sometimes we we have that concern and we feel, well, maybe it's me. Maybe I just don't get it. Maybe yeah. I'm not clever enough. Maybe I'm just too stupid to understand what... Uh, maybe I'm the imposter. Yeah, but I think that that isn't the problem. The problem is the field, uh, the way it has been configured, the uh, growing pressure on more and more people to publish, by the way. when uh, And I mean, many of the papers that I get across my desk as editor of leadership, it's obvious that there isn't really anything genuine driving it other than the desire to be published, because there's nothing interesting to say about anything and certainly uh, nothing new. So we need to recalibrate our incentives in different uh, ways to try and get more meaningful uh, work. I think more and more of us are concerned about the lack of genuinely meaningful research in the social sciences, including within management and organization studies. So I'll, I'll give another shout out again to the RRBM, uh, which I think is an excellent initiative that I hope to see flourish and grow even further in the future. And uh, I hope it influences as many of us to adopt healthy research habits. Hmm. I will put that in the show notes for sure so that listeners can check that out and access and learn about that resource. It's not something, Dennis, that I've ever heard of. So I'm excited to explore it myself. I really am. Good. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah, it's well worth pursuing and uh, getting involved in. It has received endorsements from many prominent people and also increasingly from business schools, including my own, I'm glad to say, um, as well. And it feeds into the whole uh, recognition that we must do more to get better uh, awareness created of research integrity. I mean, for example, too much of our research is driven around what statisticians call p-hacking, where mm. you keep on running statistical analysis beyond the point of reason to torture <laughs> the data into confessing that it supports whatever <laughs> hypothesis we began with. Um, so there's a lot of work to do in moving us beyond those particular mindsets. Can I call the episode that, Torturing the Data into Confessing? You can call it whatever you like. <laughs> uh, I always close out these discussions, Dennis, by asking you what you've been reading or streaming or listening to, and I'd love to hear what, what that is for you. Oh, well... I'll Other just than academic up. journal articles. Yeah. Well, I have picked up a book in the past few days by a good friend of mine, Keith Grint, looking at mutinies and leadership, which looks absolutely fascinating as well. Um, I've also been reading a great deal in the past year about an organization called Theranos. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. And I'm working with a colleague to write a paper about that because the intense surveillance and everything that employees there were subjected to, I think, is significant beyond its own immediate context. And I think we're entering into an environment in which more and more business organizations are attempting to exert what I think of as an almost totalitarian control over the behaviors and the emotions and the commitments of the people who actually work for them. And uh, the new surveillance technologies that are now being developed facilitate that to a great extent. So I've been reading a lot about those issues and trying to formulate some interesting thoughts about it that don't just repeat what we already know. Well, Dennis, you might want to, and I don't know. So, for listeners, this is this is going off of my memory only. There was an article a few years ago that alleged that Amazon had fired four hundred people, that the algorithm fired the people, that the surveillance had their data at a certain productivity level, and then they were just fired by the system. 
And so I think you are exactly right. As we use sensor technology, Internet of Things devices, which is basically sensor ne- sens- connected sensors, it, we're going to see more and more stories about productivity, surveillance, machine the the machine learning and the computer vision algorithm or the computer vision technology and the machine learning algorithms. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch that play out. Yeah, you're right about Amazon. They they have a system whereby if you fall below a certain designated level of performance, you automatically get generated a warning by the algorithm. But then if you get beyond a certain number of these warnings, you're automatically terminated. A human being doesn't have to do anything. It's yeah. all done by uh, done by these machines, and that's the world that we're moving into increasingly. Yeah. So I think that we are probably in a fairly poor period in terms of workplace designs and organizational structures in which... I think that managers, senior managers, will probably be even less interested in the welfare of their employees and their intrinsic levels of motivation than they have been in the past. Yeah. Well, there's some really interesting – There, your, your story of uh, Theranos reminded me of a new documentary about WeWork. I don't know if you've seen that. That's an interesting view. And then, again, you get into some of these – technologies enabling disruption or some of these discussions around technology and how it's being used and in some cases cases weaponized like social media there's some really interesting documentaries the social dilemma or the great hack that mm-hmm. or there's another one on Netflix called the un, called unnatural selection where you have people in their shed playing around with crispr to make more muscular dogs. I mean, it's really, it's really eye-opening as to what's happening out there on that, on that front. Yeah. But the implications for organizational life for some of those technologies, that's going to be very, that's a passion, a side yeah. passion of mine for sure. Yeah. And I mean, again, I think that maybe bringing us towards the end of our discussion, it's really important that management scholars recognize these issues and try to address them. I mean, I think, uh, We've maybe exhausted quite a number of topics in the field now. Do we need more articles in organizational discourse, for example, or communication constitutes organizations? Is there anything genuinely new to say any more about identity work? Or the big five? Should we the big or, five? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I suspect that um, one of the reasons why we still get a stream of publications on these types of topics is that people are heavily invested in their research agenda. And, uh, okay, we have a great recession that that happened, or we have climate catastrophe staring us in the face, but I will be damned if I will deviate from my research agenda in the next paper in order to try and address them. So those are some of the challenges that we face. Most important question of the podcast, your favorite Led Zeppelin song? (laughs) I think it would have to be actually when the levee breaks. It's a because I've got a great fondness for blues-type music, yeah. and I think that's just a terrific version of, of that particular track. There was some story I came across that had that he had he had recorded that drum part in like the a great hall of a home, so the 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 drums were echoing in the way that they were at the beginning of that track. Just it's a just great, great song. That's great. That's great. Just great. Absolutely incredible. Okay, sir. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time today. It was a pleasure to get to know you. Thank you for the work that you do for our field. And uh, I look forward to our paths crossing again. Well, so do I, Scott. Great to meet you. And I look forward to hopefully meeting face-to-face at some point. 
We will in 2021. We'll make it happen. It's a deal. <laughs> Dennis said something that really stood out to me. He said, the world is moving fast and our scholarship needs to reflect that in a little bit more timely manner than it does. He doesn't think we should cut corners in our work, but we can certainly be offering interesting ideas much more in a timely manner than we seem to have been doing in the past. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dennis. It was refreshing, it was fun, it was lighthearted, but it was important because I couldn't agree more. I think it's a both and. We're doing some of the traditional work that we've done, the John Antonakis, and really going back to basic and building a great foundation, but also ensuring that what we're working on is relevant. It's helping the world, helping us grow and develop in new and different ways. This has been such a fun series to put on. I want to thank John Antonakis of Leadership Quarterly. Dr. Jeannie Foray of Journal of Management Education, Doug Lindsay of the Journal of Leader and Character Development, Jonathan Reams of the Integral Review, Dr. Jackie Bruce of the Journal of Leadership Education, and of course, Dennis at the Journal Leadership. Uh, what a fun series of conversations, a lot to be reflected upon, a lot of learning, and as always, thanks to you for listening in. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phronesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.